Today's gospel passage in Matthew chapter 21 is a continuation of the story that we heard last week. Uh, You might remember that we have kicked off a new focus this October titled Reforming Life. And we are exploring every week through this month different ways that following Jesus reforms, reshapes our life. Last week, the message was around our ego. Following Jesus reforms and reshapes us from being proud people into the way of humility. We heard the great parable that Jesus taught where he said the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of heaven in front of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. This whole conversation stemmed from a pretty remarkable action that Jesus had taken moments before. In Matthew 21, Jesus enters into Jerusalem and he goes right to the temple. And he sees things that upset him, anger him, frustrate him. Money changers and rich people exploiting everyday people. And so Jesus turns over the tables and he drives out the money changers. And now he has a reckoning to deal with. Those in charge of the temple, those at the center of society ask him, in other words, who do you think you are? How dare you? By what authority do you do these things? Well, today's reading is a continuation to that question. And Jesus, being Jesus, never gives a simple, clear answer. Jesus, throughout the Gospels, is asked something like 300 questions. He only directly answers a handful of them. But in response to all of those questions, he teaches through parable. And that's where we get our parable for today. Jesus says, it's like a landowner who plants a vineyard. And I want you to consider who you feel compassion for in the parable. Where do you find injustice? Who do you resonate with in this parable? There's many characters And they all play a different role. There's the landowner. And we don't know much about this landowner other than this landowner, she or he, accumulated a great wealth, probably worked hard to build their wealth, and it was time to invest those resources into a new business endeavor. And so the individual plants a vineyard, puts a well in the midst of it, builds a watchtower, and sets out to hire tenants. And now you can imagine any landowner, any new uh, business venture, you're going to want to hire good tenants. We don't know what the interview process looked like, but I can imagine that this landowner, she or he, was meeting with lots of day laborers, workers, and trying to figure out if they would be good tenants for the new business venture. And wouldn't you know it? The landowner hires a bunch of people, and then the landowner leaves town. And the landowner trusts the tenants to care for the land, to work the soil. And then there are the tenants, right? Have you considered the role of the tenants? They, they were hired to do a job. They were employed in the vineyard, and yet they're the ones that are breaking their back every day in the hot sun. They're the ones 
tilling the ground, working on behalf of somebody else. We don't know how much they get paid. Maybe it's a fair wage. Maybe they feel like they're working below what they should earn. And then in the story, there are the servants or the slaves of the landowner who only show up to do one simple job. At harvest time, the time of the produce, these people come onto the scene and they're to take what uh, the tenants have cultivated from the land and they're to bring it back to the landowner. And these poor, these poor servants, these poor slaves, they're stoned, they're killed. They're mistreated because those people that were hired to work in the vineyard, well, they get a little greedy, don't they? A little more than greedy. They, in fact, want to be owners. I wonder what the conversation was like for them in the middle of July in the hot sun. We're breaking our back every day for this owner who's not even around. You know, wouldn't it be great if we got to enjoy the fruit of this work? This is our work anyway. And then the landowner hears what they've done. And the landowner sends more people to go. And it happens to them again. And then the landowner sends his own son, thinking, well, they'll respect my son. Well, that's kind of foolish, isn't it? There's already a track record of stoning or abusing or harming those people. And that's when the tenants really get together and and say, you know what? We ought to control this whole vineyard. Do you feel compassion for the landowner? I do. At first read, that's right where I go. I mean, I know so many people, like people here at Good Shepherd, that have worked really hard in life. They've been pioneers in their industry. They've, they've saved up and they've taken a risk to build a company or to start a new venture. And, and they did all the hard work of drawing up the plans and putting the business plan together. And they, they set everything up for success. And then they had to trust other people. But those other people, they took things sideways. And it's just not fair. Does anybody feel compassion, though, for the tenants in the vineyard? No. <laughs> they did the wrong thing. It's clear they did the wrong thing. You shouldn't kill people. This isn't yours to begin with, but it's easy for us to judge them, isn't it? And yet, if I'm really honest with you, the attitude that I often live my life with is just like the attitude of the tenants. Now, I've never killed somebody or stoned somebody so that I could control more of the assets in life. But I've had the same mind as those tenants. And if each of us are honest with ourselves, I think we can easily see how we all act like that at times. You see, it's really easy in this world. It's really easy to view everything through a lens of needing to control, to own, 
How many times in our life do we tell ourselves, well, you know what? I deserve this. I'm the one who's working so hard. This ought to belong to me. Why is that such a temptation in our life? Why are we never satisfied with being a steward of somebody else's wealth or belongings or goodness? Why do we demand on being owners in life? You see, it's a very different thing to have a stewardship mind and an ownership mentality. We like to control and stockpile. We so quickly like to build another barn and amass and accumulate. And yet, as followers of God, as children of faith, our calling is to be like a tenant. We're to live our lives with this ethic that recognizes we don't own anything, even though, yes, we work really hard. And yet, our minds become so perverted around what we don't have that we fail to see what we do. We don't need to look any further than the second chapter in the Bible, the story of creation. Genesis chapter 2. We often talk about original sin, right? You know the cast of characters there, a serpent, Adam, Eve, they're in the garden. God creates this beautiful creation, this lush garden with fruits and trees and plants and birds and animals of every kind. And God gives humanity this calling, this mandate to care for all of creation and to enjoy the garden. But God says, there's just one thing I want you to be mindful of. There's a tree that is the knowledge of good and evil. And I don't want you to go there. And now there's a little detail that I have skipped over so many times when I've read that story that I think is so telling. It actually colors and flavors for us the fullness of what this original sin or original brokenness is all about. We often think of original sin, original brokenness, is that it's that Adam and Eve wanted to be just like God. They wanted to have the knowledge of good and evil, right? And so they ate of the tree. But there's a little detail right there in Genesis chapter 2. It tells us that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was planted in the middle of the garden. Right in the middle. Which means that Adam and Eve had to walk past every other tree to get to the one they didn't have. Do you see how that's important? It wasn't enough for our first ancestors to have hundreds, if not thousands of trees at their disposal. They were fixated on the one they didn't have. I have come to believe that original sin isn't just us wanting to be like God. Original sin is humanity focusing on scarcity and not abundance. But they had to have it all just like the tenants in the vineyard. I don't want to just enjoy the produce that I get or the the wage that's in my pocket. I want 
everything. Why is this such a temptation? Well, I believe in our culture in North America, if you were to poll the average American and you were to ask them on the street, remember when Jay Leno used to do that? They'd send out a little crew onto the street and they'd ask random Americans questions and you're thinking, are we really this stupid as a country? I think if you were to poll the average American and you were to ask them, how does our culture define success? I think we know what the average American would say. Not how do you define success. How does the average American define success? The big paycheck, the big house, the nice car with the nice emblem, being able to take uh, great trips, the numbers and the zeros in your 401k account, right? We know how our culture defines success. And so much of how our culture defines victory, success, it has to do with what we consume, what we stockpile, what we take in, what we amass. Notice that our cultural definition of success is rarely what we create, what we produce, how we share, how we bless. This, I believe, is one of the greatest temptations that we face. But following Jesus, it reforms our definition of success. It has to. In 2007, I had just returned home from the war in Iraq. And for the first time in my life, I had some money in the bank, praise God. I was 22 years old. And I saved every dime of that deployment minus $5 a week to get my hair cut from the best Turkish barber on the base. All right? And those Turkish haircuts were amazing. They would light this cotton swab on fire and they would dab it in your ear to singe those ear hairs. And I I was like 21, 22 years old. And I thought, I don't have any ear hairs. I wish there was a Turkish barber around now because I've got some, (laughs) right? Some of you men know what I'm talking about. Or rather, you need to look in the mirror. Um, I saved every dime. And I came home and I remember being home from that deployment for the first time in my life feeling rich. In hindsight, the money in my bank account for over a year deployment in Iraq was not a large sum of money. But to me, I I became obsessed with it. And, you know, before the deployment, I I overdrew my bank account on pizza and beer. I mean, I, I, I had nothing. And yet I was living more generously then. I I remember I I overdrew my bank account before my deployment because I said, well, I'm going to buy pizza for everybody. And and I I, I just, I lived this, I didn't care. It was, oh, we're hungry? Okay, I'll spend money I don't have for us. But when I came home with a little bit in the bank, I, I literally would log in to Fifth Third Bank and just stare at the number multiple times a day. Now, you laugh at me. I guarantee there are people in this room that log into their accounts and just like to look at the numbers. I see some heads nodding. And I'm willing to bet that your accounts look a little bit better than 22-year-old Lauren's looked. I came home and I had this money and I had this wealth now and, 
And something began to creep up in my heart and in my mind, and, and I kept thinking about what I deserved. So I worked really hard. I broke my back. I, I, I literally sweated out blood and tears through a deployment, and I put my life on the line. I earned every dollar that's mine. So Lauren, how will you treat yourself? And I came home right before Black Friday, all those specials. And at the time, I was obsessed with getting a flat screen TV, one of those big fancy ones. And back then, they were not a few hundred bucks at Costco. They were more expensive, a couple thousand dollars. And, and so I got up early in the morning on Black Friday. I went to Walmart, and I ran into the store, and I was knocking old ladies over. I, not really. But you can imagine the scene, right? It's like a fisherman telling a story. I've got to embellish part of it. So I knocked Ethel over, and, and I ran to the aisle, and I grabbed one of those big boxes, and I put it on my cart, and I'm going to check out, and I bought my dream TV. It was like a 50-inch flat screen. And I drove back to OSU's campus into my studio apartment, and I was lugging this thing up. And I didn't have a piece of furniture big enough for it. <laughs> I didn't need a 50-inch flat screen TV. I'm 22 years old. I don't know where to put it. Uh, I, Ikea furniture doesn't hold a big TV well. And I remember plugging it in and getting it set up and hooked up. And, and I remember just sitting there thinking, oh, I've arrived. Look at that picture quality. I can't wait to watch the Buckeyes beat up Michigan on this TV. The next week, my sister invited me over. I hadn't seen my sister since I had returned home from my deployment. And I was nervous to drive to her apartment. My sister's three years older, and we didn't see each other often at that season of our lives. I was this soldier, student, single, footloose and carefree. While my sister was a single mom raising two small children. She got pregnant at 18 years old, and her journey looked a whole lot different than mine. My sister worked at the same daycare that she started working at when she was 15. She was making barely minimum wage. And I was driving to her apartment. I kept thinking, ah, how's this going to go? And I'm not used to being around little kids. And I'll stay about an hour, and I'll leave. I'll get back to that TV. My sister opened the door. Bubbers! That's my nickname. Bubbers! And she wrapped me up in this hug and, look at you, look at you. She just always was doting over me. My whole life she was doting over me. And sit down and Alexis and Jalen, her two kids, are crawling over me and I'm figuring it out and I'm an uncle, but I don't know how to be an uncle. And tell me everything. How was Iraq? How was this? How was that? Are you dating anyone? Tell me everything. And we're talking and catching up, and my sister gets up to go to the bathroom, and she says, Lauren, do you want something to drink? Go, go in the kitchen, get something. And I go into the kitchen, and I look around, and something just doesn't feel right. And I open the refrigerator, and there's a can of Coke, a can of Sprite, a little pack of half-eaten lunch meat, and one of those baking soda boxes in the back. And I look back in the living room at Alexis and Jalen, and my sister has no food. So while she's in the bathroom, I open up her cupboards and it's like a box of Cheerios and a couple little things of pre-made mac and cheese. And 
And I felt so convicted. I sat down on the couch and I don't remember what we talked about the rest of that time visiting, but I remember driving back to OSU's campus just thinking, walked into my apartment and there was the TV. And you know when a TV's not on, it's got that reflective nature, the black, black screen. I remember just standing in front of it, looking at myself and feeling like I had failed in some way. So I boxed the TV up. I drove back to Walmart and I returned it. I didn't know what I was going to do, but I just, it just didn't feel right. And so that Christmas, when I went to my sister's apartment, I gave her a check for the exact amount the TV cost. I share that story, not to say, wow, Lauren's a generous guy. I share that story because it's a real example in my life of many examples in my life of how following Jesus reforms our definition of success. How does God define success? Is it how much you can amass, how much you can build, how much you can enjoy? Is it your wealth? Is it your prestige? Is it the emblem on your car? Or does God define success when all of our siblings in humanity have enough to feed their children? You see, God doesn't just care if our biological brothers and sisters have enough. God cares about the children on every mother's lap throughout the world, not just the ones that sit on your lap. Following Jesus reforms, reshapes how we view success. Success is looking at that which the world rejects and saying that is actually God's preferred option. There is nobody, no woman, no man, no child who should not be celebrated and lifted up. Following Jesus reshapes, reforms how we view success. Success is a world restored with grace and peace. Success isn't a bigger barn. It's a bigger table where more people can eat and be filled. And in a few minutes, we're going to gather around this table. And every person in this room will be fed. Because that's God's desire. And so as we leave this table and we gather around our own, may we go out with the same ethic, the same mission, the same drive, that what is true in here would be true out there. Amen? Amen.